You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Guest, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. We're going to continue in our series, which we have titled Hope Shaped Holiness, where we are walking through the letters to uh, the Thessalonians. And if you are a guest today, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say. And we want to submit our lives to his words. When we come and hear God's word, we come to it and then we place our lives under it. We respond to it. We obey it. And so every week we proclaim the gospel of Jesus revealed in God's Word. And if you are a guest, and maybe you don't have a uh, book, uh, a Bible, copy of the Bible with you, you can grab one of those hard-covered Bibles in front of you and turn to page 1049 and follow along with us. Oftentimes, when you speak to people who may not have a Christian background or may not have a Christian worldview, if you ask them about eternity... You may ask them, why would God let you into heaven? Why would God let you into heaven? Why would God allow you to be in his presence? And oftentimes you can get this image of people who think that there's this scale, this cosmic scale that is going to weigh out your good and your bad. I just have to do good enough to make sure that that scale is tipped in that direction for me to be in the presence of of God. And that view of if I just have to be good enough actually invades how we live today. Oftentimes we think if, if there's just enough good in the world, then everything's going to be okay. But if you've experienced the world the same way that I have experienced the world, the evil outweighs the good by a whole lot whether you've experienced that personally in your own life, whether people have mistreated you, whether you've been persecuted for your faith, whether you have suffered illness and sickness. When I look at the world, it's broken. And sin has weighed down a scale that could never be evened out or never be made good by just us. So when we come here to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, what we see is a God who recognizes that reality. A God who understands that we live in a sinful, broken world, but a God who has responded to that brokenness. A God who has stepped into that world, and a God who is coming back for his people. We think of justice in many ways. We want the scales to be balanced. I want, when I am done wrong, for justice to be served. But I am not adequate enough to serve that justice. But our God is. And so we walk through this first chapter of this second letter. Here's what we're going to see this morning. Paul presents the Thessalonians with the hope of God's justice despite the intense persecution they face. 
And now, if you're a disciple, uh, maybe you're new to Covenant Hope, we talk about making mature disciples together. This is who we are. We're trying to grow in maturity, to love Jesus more today than we did yesterday, and then to help people love Jesus more today than they did yesterday. We're here to make mature disciples. So if you are a disciple today, here's how we grow in maturity this morning. Our faithful endurance through suffering honors Christ and declares trust in God's justice. Our faithful endurance declares trust in God's justice. So church, understand we must trust in God's justice because it fuels faithful endurance which will honor the Lord Jesus. And so we come here to this first chapter of this second letter. Remember, Paul wrote the first letter, and not very much time has passed since he writes now this second letter. And if you look there in, uh, in those first few verses, what you see, it's Paul and Silas and Timothy. It's the same writer, and it's the same people. So Paul is the one who wrote 1 Thessalonians. He's now the one who writes 2 Thessalonians. And it's the same church. What does he say? He said to the church of the Thessalonians. Right? It's the same people. But we find them here in this letter. They are suffering as they did before. They are under persecution and opposition as before, but it has intensified. It's gotten worse. Following Jesus has gotten more difficult for them. Maybe even similar to us as we live in a culture that is trending in that direction. And on top of that, they are confused about some really important topics. Some really important doctrines. They are confused about Christ's return. And that confusion is causing them to fear and to doubt. Have we missed Christ's coming? Has he left us behind? One of my favorite movies is Interstellar. And uh, in the movie, uh, it is, it's a wonderful depiction of, of, a, of a dystopian world. I mean, it's a terrible uh, plot and setting of any kind of movie. But what I love about it is... It shows at what depths we can go because we love other people. And there's this little girl named Murph. And her dad is the one who has to go on this uh, space exploration to figure out how can they uh, continue life outside of the planet Earth. And what, what her dad doesn't know is that he leaves based on a lie. But a scientist told him, we can do this. But in reality, he hadn't figured it out. He couldn't. And so they were, he was on a mission that was actually doomed to fail. And they were able to transmit videos. And Murph, she, you see the time lapse because they're away for long periods of time. And she, as she grows up, she videos herself. And she finds out the truth. that This was not, not going to be a good plan. And she asked, did my daddy leave me to die? That's what these people are feeling. Did God leave us to die? And in no way, and in no way did our God leave these people to suffer, be persecuted, and that be it. No, Jesus is coming back. It's the same God, the same God 
who sent Jesus into the world, is going to send Jesus back to get his people. And that's what's maybe most important about these first few verses, is that it's the same God that we believe in. But Paul, he wants to correct their understanding. He wants to show them your suffering is, yes, happening, but you have not missed the coming of Jesus. You can trust God. You can trust the Father. So the question for us today then is how do we declare our trust in God's justice? How do we even place our trust in God's justice in the midst of a broken world whose scales are tipped to one side? There are three actions that we can take to declare our trust in God's justice. Three actions that we can take. Number one, we pursue the holiness of God in sanctification. We pursue the holiness of God in sanctification. Now, as we jump in, if you are a newer uh, believer, maybe you're new to Christianity, let me define what sanctification is. It's just a big word to talk about becoming more like Jesus. It's the process that disciples go through to look more like Jesus. As we, we use the word maturity, we use the word maturity. We want to grow and look more like Jesus. And we understand that God is always working in us and through us. So we pursue the holiness of God in sanctification. So we should thank God for progress. Look there at verse 3. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Remember Paul and his team, uh, he uses this we, right, with Timothy and Silas. So they ought to thank God for the Thessalonian believers. And Paul, he's describing this obligation. It's not a duty. It's an obligation. No, out of the gratitude I feel, I'm going to thank God. Paul is so glad that God is there in their progress. And now there are two areas of progress that Paul highlights that he speaks about. And they're particular Christian virtues that he talked about in the first letter. The first is faith. He says that their faith is flourishing, that is thriving, growing, continuing, despite all of these hardships. The word for flourish is an agricultural word, right? It is a clear evidence, a clear way that we are going to receive a harvest, Paul says, of your faith. It's tangible. I can go get it. And the second virtue is love, specifically brotherly love that we talked about in chapter 4 of the first letter. And this is the same love that Paul commends to them here. He says that that love is increasing. So although you are struggling, you are working through so many obstacles, let me encourage you, your love is increasing. Just like their faith, they are growing in their love. Now, understand, church, that love is primarily an action to take, not a feeling that our culture wants to tell us but that an action that leads to a feeling. Right? We have to put the work in and commit ourselves to the difficulties of love. If you've been married for a long time, you understand the difficulty of the relationship because you understand that you are difficult. And so when we love others, we bring those difficulties into those relationships. But we have to be willing to work through those and despite those. And notice, 
there are two kinds of growth here that I think is important for us to understand. Paul is speaking about a spiritual growth in the life of the Thessalonians. In faith, love, and hope that we'll see in a second. This is a spiritual, but there's also a numerical growth. That when the church lives out the gospel and it is proclaiming the words of the gospel and then being the hands and feet of Jesus, there is going to be an impact in the communities that they live in. It's just the natural outworking. We live in a community that is growing. And so we, in theory, if we are living out the gospel, will then grow by people coming to faith in Christ. But we must be very careful. It does not mean that just because you grow in one area, you will grow in the other And we want to grow numerically, absolutely, but if we fail to only grow numerically and not spiritually, it will be for nothing. And so Paul says, no, let me encourage you. With all the other stuff going on, you're growing spiritually in Christ. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. But then then he really tells us to talk about the progress. If we're going to grow in holiness, grow in sanctification, we should talk about the progress. Look there at verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. Now, as a result of their growth, since they are growing, Paul says they boast about them to other churches. How should we understand this word boast, though? Because most of the time, often we think of boasting in a negative light in the sense of arrogance and pride. But this isn't what Paul means here. Paul is boasting about God's people for God's honor. Paul is boasting in the gracious work of God, specifically about these people, about this young church. He is boasting. He's talking about them. He's talking about their growth to other churches. Hey, don't forget that, yes, you over in Judea, you are growing. Remember the Thessalonians as they grow in persecution and faith despite their opposition. And Paul uses this boasting, one, to help other churches grow, but also to look at the Thessalonians in his writing and say, you're going on the right path. Don't let down and don't look back. You are growing. Keep going. Right, my favorite, one of my other favorite movies, I, I like to watch movies, as you've probably noticed if you've been here at all. One of my other favorite movies is The Intern, where Robert De Niro is an older man, and uh, he's retired, and he ends up going to get, uh, he tries to find another job, but can't get hired, but he, he ends up becoming an intern at this young startup business. And he's there, and he's getting the orientation, and somebody rings this bell really loudly, and he's like, what is that? And what they do, every time someone does something well, they, they ring the bell. And the whole, it's an open uh, office concept, so then everybody's clapping and cheering, hey, great job. That's what the church is supposed to be like. Hey, you fought sin this week, praise God for that. Hey, you uh, share the gospel boldly, great job in that. And so we actually, when we see God working, we should tell people, hey, great job encourage them or tell them about it and then tell God about it because maybe one of the best things we can do when we see people growing is to acknowledge the Lord that we see that and to ask the Lord continue to press in these people to continue to grow and so Paul says talk about it boast about it the question is what is this boasting about 
Of course, it's about their growth in their faith and their love, but mainly this boasting is about their perseverance in faith despite persecution and affliction. This young church is suffering at the hands of opposition. And we remember from the first letter that this is, this is intensified. And those, those forces that are bumping up against their church is not just hostile to them. They're hostile to God. They oppose him, and therefore they oppose us. And Paul says that you are enduring. I know, he's very pastorally saying to them, I know you are struggling in these afflictions. I know that you're being persecuted, but you are staying firm. Continue in that. He reminds them that they're doing well. Right, in church, we should never wish for difficult times, ever. We should not seek out suffering. Instead, we should pray for peace. But when a quiet life is elusive, we can count on God during those trials and tribulations. It is our endurance that demonstrates our trust in God. But don't be fooled. Do not be fooled and read here just to think, well, the Thessalonians, they, they just gritted their teeth when they got through it. They, they were able to grin and bear it. That's not what happens. They did not pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. No. Paul starts the letter very clearly. By the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not by anything that they can do. It is Christ who is empowering them through faith. Their faith in Christ is what's sustaining them. God has worked in them, brought true change and growth. He's now allowing them to endure. God is working. For those who love God have a supernatural ability to stay steadfast and to persevere and to work hard despite any opposition that comes. A few years ago, there was uh, an NBA franchise uh, in Philadelphia who said, uh, we're going we're gonna to begin to lose a bunch of games and we're going to get a bunch of picks and we're going to be better uh, in a decade. That's basically what their thought process was. And so they gave this moniker, we're going to trust the process. We're going to trust the process. Now, for them, they still haven't won many playoff series. Uh, they're, they're not really that, they are better, but they're not really going to win anything. But they said, trust the process. I actually think we can take that moniker ourselves. Trust the process. Trust that God is working in you and through you and that whatever comes, God will be faithful to continue to work in you. But understand, God is not only good in the future. He's not only just down the road. He is just in you right now. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, said this, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. We must trust his heart. When all the things are going on, when all the, the opposition's there, when all the, 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 the terrible news, God is there. And his hand is on us and he's working in us and trust what God has done in your life because it's evidence of a just and good God. God has worked to grow in us and we can trust his work in us, but we don't just do that when it's good. We do it during difficult times. 
So how do we proclaim this trust in those difficult times? Well, we'll look, let's look at the second action. We proclaim the righteousness of God despite suffering. Look at verse 5. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering. Often we think of God's righteousness and judgment in the future. Right? Something that's coming. This is absolutely true, which we're going to see here in just a few verses. But Paul shows us that God's justice is being worked out even now. What do I mean by that? Look down at that word, evidence. It means that there's plain indication. There is clear proof. But what is there evidence of? God's righteous judgment. The endurance of God's people, both in sanctification and in suffering, proves that God is just. How? We were once his enemies. We were once at odds with God. And in Christ now, we've been brought into his family. And not only have we been brought into the family, we've been now given the characteristics of the son, of the, of the king. And so our God has paid for our sin and now made us holy in Christ. That is a just God. It is God's justice which produces our ability to endure to that final day where we then will be counted worthy. God's justice is not just in the future. And what are we worthy of? Paul says of God's kingdom. We're, we're made worthy of God's kingdom through the atoning work of Christ. That we, when we trust in him, that he paid for our sin, took on God's wrath, and was then given to us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that now we get that righteousness. I want you to see the connection between suffering and God's kingdom. This young church was suffering unfairly. But God had worked in them in a just way. But they help us see that we participate in, maybe even prepare for the kingdom of God through suffering. And that is not a statement that anybody wants to hear when they talk about coming to faith in Christ. But it's the truth. That we may experience suffering that we may struggle suffering is unavoidable on the path to god's kingdom to god's glory but good eschatology just a big word for what we believe about the future helps us hold the tension that god is just and that the world is unfair and so if we believe and trust in god then we can look at the world and say it's unfair but he's going to do something about it so let's look at what he's going to do Look at verse 6. God will repay. Since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God indeed judges righteously. And Paul founds our trust in the actions that he will take in the future. These three actions are a statement of our faith. Since it is just for God to do these things. We believe that he is going to do them. It's, an, it's a statement of our faith in him. God is doing something through the person and work and return of Jesus Christ, which we're waiting on his return. And if we proclaim God is just, that means he must deal with the unfair affliction of his people. This means that Paul says God is going to repay those who afflict you. Justice is mine. It's not the church's. It's mine. Meaning he will hold these people accountable for their actions and he will punish them, remember, 
Remember last week in 1 Samuel 15, hundreds of years later, the, Am- the uh, Amalekites come and they, they take out the, the, the babies and the, the women and the weak when they're on their way to the promised land. And then hundreds of years later, God says, now it's time for justice. God doesn't forget the affliction of his people. When we speak of God's justice and righteousness, we must speak of his judgment. We think about those scales. Justice must be served. We cannot speak of God's goodness and holiness and righteousness without speaking of judgment. God will repay. But secondly, God will relieve. Look at verse 7. And to give relief to those who uh, you are afflicted along with us. God isn't only concerned about his opposition. He isn't just concerned uh, with his enemy. He's concerned with his people. We know this from God's history, that he cares deeply for us and for his people, not allowing suffering to go on and on and on. Just think of the people while they were in Egypt. God said, their cries have made it to my ear. I know that they are suffering. It's time. It's time. And Paul says God will give relief. It's this idea of lifting off a heavy burden from our shoulders. We have to understand that any suffering that we face has an expiration date on it. It will go bad. It will not last forever. When we know what God will do in the future, we can proclaim His righteousness to ourselves and to others. Proclaiming God's justice, that He will give relief to us, reminds us of God's character. In times of suffering, in times of difficulty... It's really easy to be tempted to mistrust God. It's really easy to think, maybe he just doesn't care about me. But that is not true. And Paul, what he does is he opens, he lifts our eyes to the future. He says, no, look at what God's going to do. Trust in this righteous, holy God who sent his only son into the world for you. Trust him. And thirdly, God is not only going to repay, he's not only going to relieve, he's going to reveal. Look at at the next part in verse 7. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. When he takes vengeance with flaming uh, fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In many ways, the first two actions lead to this point. It builds to this. Even though we may proclaim that God will repay and relieve in the future, the question is when? If you look now, when is God going to do this? Paul says, don't worry. Don't worry when God's going to relieve and to repay. He tells us how it's going to unfold. All things, suffering, persecution, opposition, will be dealt with when Christ returns. That's what the this is. These things, the repay and the relief, will happen at the revelation of Jesus. And revelation means to show, to reveal, to uncover that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe. Now, he used a different word. In the first letter, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, he talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus, when Jesus is coming down for us. But here he uses revelation, and here's why. Because when Paul is, he's giving hope to the church then in the first letter, now he's saying, no, Jesus will be revealed, and then everyone, whether they they kneel or stand or oppose him, he's going to be Lord. And at that point, they will no longer be standing. He will be revealed. 
because his opposition is still against him. But his enemies won't last very long. When Jesus returns, he will pass judgment on all those who oppose him and afflict his people. He is coming personally, visibly, and in glory. Paul says, from heaven. Right? A connection to Daniel 7 with the Son of Man. He is coming from heaven. He is this one. He is coming powerfully with angels. Right? He's coming with an army. Right? And this, normally, this is talking, you know, in the Old Testament, it is God the Father who has the angels. It's clearly speaking about Jesus' deity here. Jesus has angels. And remember, back in the first letter, and us, we are accompanying him. Jesus has his people and he has his angels. We see that it is this Jesus, this, the historical Christ, the one who came into the world as God in the flesh. It's he who takes vengeance. Notice that it's Jesus who does this. Jesus takes vengeance for his people. He's the one who vindicates us. Jesus has come to judge the world when he returns. And it says with fire, Paul is talking about the holiness that Jesus is able to weigh the scale at that point. How he weighs it is important because it's, it's held up to his holiness. And it's to punish the wicked, those who don't know God, unbelievers, right? Those who don't obey the gospel. It's this idea of willful rejection, right? Obeying the gospel sounds a little odd to us, doesn't it? We think that we have faith in the gospel. Well, obeying... It means to receive, to, to believe, to hold on to. We know that obedience is an act of belief. Obedience is an act of belief. And the Thessalonians, they have turned away from idols in chapter 1 of the first letter. And they have sought holiness in chapter 4. So these people now are obeying the gospel. So he's making a contrasting of those who afflict and those who trust in God. But what is the punishment? What does this revelation do? Look at verse 9. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. Even though oftentimes it looks like the wicked may get away, they may prosper, we know that they will not in the end. Paul says that they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. What is that? This word eternal means forever. It means everlasting. It's the same word used in John 3.16 everlasting life so this destruction is the same as the opposite of eternal life it's eternal punishment we believe that hell does not end we believe that hell is a real place and it is a place where all the wickedness will be punished and that's not easy but it's the truth and on top of this look he says the destruction they face is being separated from the Lord's presence and power. Do you see the irony here? Do you understand what Paul is saying? These people who afflict you, they want nothing to do with God. They don't want him. They don't want his rules on them. They don't want anything. They don't think they need him. And so when the judgment comes, here's the irony. What you didn't want in this life, you are going to get in the eternal life. Sad. That God actually gives us what we want. What we think we want. That these people are going to be separated from his goodness and his, his graciousness forever. God 
God doesn't make these people love him. Salvation is life with God and destruction is life without God. What do you desire? Do you desire life with God? Or do you really desire life without Him? Because when we choose sin, church, when I choose sin, when you choose sin, what we are saying is we don't, we don't really want you, God. We don't really want you. But remember, there are two different groups here. Right? Those who have eternal life, those who have eternal destruction, those who obey the gospel. And now, look at verse 10. On that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you, you believed. You have those who don't believe, now you have those who believe. He makes a sharp contrast between those who believe. The testimony, the gospel, the gospel witness, the gospel proclamation. Those who have willfully rejected him are not those who obey the gospel. And for God's people, they will glorify the Lord and worship him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and what? Enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Although we can do this now, in the end, we will fully glorify him and we will fully enjoy him. But we will also marvel at him. What, what Paul's saying, we will worship him. We will praise his name for what he's done. There will be no distractions. There will be no sinful desires. There will be no nagging sins. We will not be drawn away from the tension of our Lord Jesus on that day. Praise God. But there will be nothing left pulling at us. We will be able to see our Lord face to face and to glorify Him and to worship Him. Do you know that the gathered church right now, what we do is foreshadowing that day? What we do now together? And when we give ourselves fully to this moment, this is why we gather weekly because we're proclaiming not just a risen Savior, but a returning Lord. And so that is a meeting of two truths together. We proclaim God is coming back for His people. And we're going to live differently in light of that. Worship may demonstrate our trust most visibly. What do I mean by that? When the world is going crazy around us, when we got terrible news on Saturday night of a family member or our own uh, health problems, when we have to go back to cancer treatments on Monday, we stop on Sunday morning and we come gather together because we need to hear God's word proclaimed. We need to be built up and encouraged. And we sing about the beauty and the glory of our Lord Jesus. That's why we worship. And there, there may be nothing else that you do that most visibly proclaims the goodness and the justice of a God when everything else right now is spinning out of control. And to come here and to worship. We come to worship every Sunday because we're, we're proclaiming, we're declaring our trust in Him. And even though it seems that the scales aren't balanced here and now, let's remember what God's going to do in the future. Let's remember what God's going to do. He will balance those scales. Justice will, end, will win in the end. 
So we know that we can trust God, what he's doing in us, and we know we can trust God in the future. So what are we supposed to do now? It brings us to our third action. We pray for the endurance to honor God's salvation. If we're going to trust God's justice and to honor Christ, we need to pray for the endurance to honor God's salvation. Look at verse 11. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith. We need to honor his calling. We need to honor his calling. Paul's response to God's justice is prayer, right? And specifically prayer for the Thessalonians to do what? To endure, right? This prayer is connected to the first prayer in the first couple verses, Right, and the prospect of transformation, what Paul says, when we believe that you are being transformed now and you believe that you will be transformed in the future, that is what the incentive is for us to continue to press forward in that transformation. It helps us pursue holiness, to pursue to look more like Jesus. And Paul now links the future with our present. These are not disconnected. Paul so trusts the work and plan and will of God that it drives him to prayer. He actually believes that prayer works. He, and they're not just prayers centered around employment or health or school. If God will answer prayers concerning non-eternal matters, which are important, by the way, how much more will he answer the prayers for us to endure How much more will he answer the prayer when we pray for each other to be found worthy of God's righteousness, worthy of our our calling in Christ? How much more will he not answer that prayer? God answers the prayers of his people. But we must not be fooled into thinking that, well, we'll pray when we feel like it. We'll pray when it's needed. Because when times like this come, if we're not ready, we won't be praying. We won't be praying. I had a high school basketball coach who told us, what you do in practice will, will be what you do in the game. And so we practiced everything. Church, what we do now, in a time where we, we live in peace, there may, that day may end. And my job and Pastor Ryan's job for you is that we prepare you, that day may come. Or God may call you to be sent all across, uh, somewhere around the world that is not in the place that we are and so my job is to ready you for that day and how we prepare now will dictate how we play in the future and particularly how we pray in the future prayer is a response of trust not our feelings so what's the prayer that god would make us worthy of his calling a prayer to be found worthy of our salvation Our calling is salvation into Jesus Christ. This calling is not individual. It's not what you're looking to do. This calling is that you are called into God's family through Jesus Christ. Remember, that is your primary calling. Into Christ and into his family. And who does Paul rest his request with? God. Not me, not you, or anyone else. The prayer to endure and to be found worthy rests solely on the God who has called us in the first place. He will fulfill it. He will bring it to completion. It is God's work 
in us that produces this, the desire to do good like our God. And Paul prays, would your desire to do good grow? Would your faith produce good works? Would we work out our faith in a way that's demonstrated to the world? So may we honor his calling. But may we also honor the Christ. Look at verse 12. So the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Why does endurance in our salvation even matter? Why must we trust God to work in us? Why must we be found worthy? For the sake of Christ's holy name. That the reputation of Jesus in his name is so airtight that there is no doubt of our God's righteousness no doubt of our God's justice. So that when people see us, they say, their God must be just and righteous. He must be good. Being found worthy, pressing forward in God's grace provides opportunity for Jesus to be glorified. But be sure, we are not glorifying Jesus on our own. It is the glory of Jesus shown from Him and through us that now shines and shows the beauty and splendor of a gracious Savior, but a coming Lord. All right, think about an incandescent light bulb. We don't have any in this room anymore. We have LED light bulbs. But norm what they used to do, normally you would have a filament in the, in the light bulb. Right? And so uh, when you think about this light bulb, the light bulb is actually not causing the, it to come on. Right, what's causing it to come on? We all know the answer. It's electricity. Right, when it's heated, when the filament, when the, the wiring in those uh, bulbs are heated up, they come on, they light up. Right, so in the same way, when Christ's glory, when he returns, it comes through us and lights us up to display his glory to the world. When Jesus returns, he is flipping the final light switch. Some of you have uh, light switches in your homes that maybe turn it on halfway and you flip the other one and it turns it on the full way. That's what's happening here. That in the end of time, the final light switch is going to be turned on and the glory of Jesus is going to be shown in his multitude of people. The question for us is, do we accurately reflect Jesus' glory now? Are we living worthy of the gospel we have now? Are we pushing people to Jesus or are we pushing people away from Jesus? That's the question that's before us. In the midst of God's righteousness and goodness, are we pushing people to Jesus or away from Jesus? Because church, this passage is a wonderful reality. That Christ will be glorified. He will be glorified through us. We just have to have a relationship with Him. We just have to have the connection from the light bulb to the electricity from our hearts to Christ. But that is only through the grace of God, the gospel. There is no outside hope of life. There is no possibility to glorify Jesus without the grace of God. We started this morning with talking about scales being balanced. And oftentimes we think about, we want, our, we want the scales of our lives to be balanced in a way that what's happened to us. But really... We don't want our scales balanced, do we? 
Because if we were to be the ones who decided that, we could never get the, the evil part to balance out with the good. It's only in Christ that we can then be weighed down by the goodness and holiness of our God. If you have not submitted to Jesus today, if you've not given your life to Him, what we just shared is it's not about you. You are the opposite of that. In no way do I tell you that to scare you. I tell you that to, this is the truth. And this, now today, we, we hear not only of his judgment, but also of his goodness, that now Jesus enters into the world to die for you. So if you've not trusted and submitted to Christ, his arms are wide open for you to trust him for the first time ever and to welcome you into his family and to start this process of trusting him more and more and more. If you repent and believe in him, you can be saved. Church, our hope, our assurance, our foundation is not built on anything other than the grace shown to us in Jesus Christ. Paul starts there and he ends there in the first chapter. It's his blood and his righteousness as we just sang. Don't give up. Don't give in to doubt. Don't let your heart turn away to the lures of the world. Recount the ways that God has been good to you. Recount the ways that God has worked in you and in others. Do you trust God? Do you trust God? I heard this from a pastor this week, and it's where we're in our time this morning. The grace that claimed you will sustain you. The grace that claims you will sustain you. Pray with me. God, we love you. We are so in awe of who you are. We need you to help remind us of your goodness and your graciousness. We need you to help lift our eyes above our current situation to a future that is glorious and where you reign God, would you empower us to live out these actions today, that we would honor our Lord Jesus by trusting in God's justice. For those in the room this morning who are struggling through any kind of suffering or persecution, any kind of affliction, would you encourage them today? And I pray that they would be encouraged to trust you more. We need you, God, to work in us these ways. We want to follow you, and we ask you to help us. Would you help us endure, and would you help us grow? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.